0: and welcome to yet another edition of the Time Out with DG Podcast. I am your host, as always, Daniel Gotera. Thanks for stopping by. It is Monday, March 21st, a week away from my birthday, and it is a dreary, nasty, stormy day here in Houston, Texas. Hope you guys had a good weekend. I'm finally recovering with my voice. If you saw me on TV a couple of days ago, you probably thought I sounded like a Muppet. Uh, because last week, man, a sinus infection, allergies. I have no idea what it was. It hit me about last Tuesday and then it just it just took me over uh, about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I was a mess. Finally got antibiotics at the end of the week. started losing my voice on Friday night. Uh, that was concerning. And, of course, I start losing my voice when all the Houston sports news starts breaking. I mean, this is what it's like in this town, right? I mean, we have our moments of, you know, big deals coming through and players signing and leaving and ownership transfers. All that stuff happens. It's a big city. We're the fourth largest city in America. That's going to happen, right? It's a big sports town. But every now and then, every now and then, we have like a 48- to 72-hour period where things just go wild And all the news starts breaking. Everything that we've been waiting for basically over the last, what, six months? Everything happened within a 48-72 hour span. Deshaun Watson gets traded. Thank goodness that's finally over. Carlos Correa leaves the Astros for the Minnesota Twins of all teams. We'll get into that here in a little bit. Those two stories we'll dive into with our top two contributors, I would say, here on the podcast. We'll talk Correa with our baseball analyst, Jeremy Booth, our KHOU baseball analyst, Jeremy Booth. He's here to talk Carlos Correa. Then I also have Mike Meltzer on to talk about Deshaun Watson and the trade to Cleveland. Both of those guys are great. They offer always some great insight into what's going on with the uh, Houston sports scene. So I'm happy to have both of those guys to join me. But over the weekend, as this stuff's happening, I did get a couple of messages on both Twitter and Facebook like, hey, man, when's the next podcast coming out? Like, I can't do it. I, I can't do it because I can't talk. If I talked for more than about five minutes a couple of days ago, I would have been done. And I had to save my voice for television. You imagine my raspy voice. It's like i had been smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey since I was five years old. I know people like that. Um, so I know what that voice sounds like. And I didn't want that voice to be on the podcast. Right now, I may take a break here and there to drink some water as we kind of get into these conversations and my thoughts on both of these topics before we get to Booth and Meltzer. But uh, you'll hear me take some breaks. That's me drinking some water. But my voice is finally back. Man, that sinus infection really hit me. And it it happened at the worst possible time. It, all this news, this crazy news cycle really started happening... Before Selection Sunday, right? we got the lockout ending, spring training starts, Selection Sunday, TSU plays on Tuesday, U of H goes to Pittsburgh, our sports department is spread all over the country, I had to hold down the Ford here, Matt Musil was in Pittsburgh, Jason Bristol was in Florida, we were all over the place, I thought we did some pretty good coverage over the last week, I'm actually heading to uh, San Antonio, tomorrow if you're listening to this on Monday I'm going on Tuesday the Cougars practice on Wednesday in San Antonio and they face Arizona in the Sweet 16 on Thursday that's gonna be a fantastic matchup Uh, I'm so happy for the Cougars by the way I'll talk about them at the end of this podcast but before we get into our first topic which is Carlos Correa go ahead and like and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already what are you waiting for I have not been as as um up to date with these episodes as I would like. In fact, a coworker, Melissa Correa, she called me out on this over the week. I tried to hide it and say, oh no, I do post stuff every week. No, no, no. I, I, I've been lacking here because like I said, last week I was sick. I had a lot of stuff going on at work. Didn't have time to record a podcast. And then before that, my son was sick my wife got sick boy she got hit with some kind of weird strain of the flu she was out for three days from work it was crazy so it's kind of been going around the house my daughter has an ear infection so we are a hot mess express at the gotera household i'll tell you that right now but we're getting better drugs are an amazing thing antibiotics steroids i'm on both of those so i'm recovering here guys i'm getting through this as quickly as i can but Let's go into it. Let's dive right into it. The first topic at hand, let's get to Carlos Correa because that news broke, what, Saturday night? or No, wait, that broke Friday night. I'm losing track of things. That broke late on Friday night, multiple outlets reporting that Carlos Correa is heading to the Minnesota Twins. So after months and months of speculation, Carlos Correa decides to pick the Minnesota Twins of all teams in Major League Baseball, a team that really has no shot of contending, a team that plays in a ballpark that's not conducive to hitting. He picks the Minnesota Twins over staying with the Houston Astros or going anywhere else, and look, the news was shocking in a sense because of the team that he picked to go play for, right? Minnesota has no shot at winning the division. They don't have very much pitching. The White Sox are most likely going to win that division, hopefully, because I'm a huge Sox fan. And I hate the Twins. Always hated the Twins. So I think the Sox are going to win that division. The Twins may contend for a wild card, but like I said, they don't have much pitching, even though they did pick up Sonny Gray, but they don't have much else after that. Um, So Correa is going to sign a... Three year, $105 million deal, but opt outs after the first two years. He's getting $35 million a year. And what this deal tells me, after having multiple discussions with a lot of people, and you'll hear from Jeremy Booth here in a little bit, Correa just wanted to be paid, right? He just wanted to be the highest paid, not only shortstop, but infielder. He is now past Anthony Rendon. He's past. Um, the guy out of the Mets, I'm blanking Reyes. I think it's Reyes. Is Reyes. Yeah, I think that's who it is. But um, the Mets, he just wanted to be the highest paid guy. And you know what? I don't fault him for that. That's totally fine. Totally cool. But a lot of people online are blaming the Astros for not wanting to match that deal. And I don't think that's what this was all about. I honestly think, and I agree with my colleague, Jason Bristol. I'm going to give him a shout out for this because he, he was the one that kind of broke this down. And I totally agree with him on this point. He believes, as do I, that Scott Boris, Carlos Correa's agent, was negotiating two types of contracts here one with the Astros and one with other teams. Okay. With the Astros, I do believe, I really do believe Carlos Correa would have stayed with the Astros if he had signed, if he had offered, or if the team had offered, I should say a 10-year, $350 million deal like he was looking for. The club offered him five years, $160 million. That's still $32 million a year. And if you're interested in winning, and if you're interested in staying with a fan base that is really all about your services and all about what you bring to the club and to the city and what you've done since you got drafted in 2012 or the last 10 years, then you stay here. Right, that's obvious. That's it. That's an easy choice. The Astros are contenders, World Series contenders, probably going to another ALCS where they will probably face the White Sox. So they are contenders, right? Instead, he picks a team that's not contending for more money with opt outs in the contract. So it goes back to the point that Jason Bristol was making, and that I agree with again. I think Scott Boris was negotiating with the Astros for a longer-term deal. If the Astros had offered him that, then I think he would have signed here. Five years was not long enough. I don't know if the Astros presented him a six-year, seven-year, eight-year incentive-laced package contract-type deal to entice him to stay. I'm not sure about that. But they weren't going to do anything more than the the five-year 160. That was obvious. That's what the Astros are doing. They've shown that they do not give huge long-term contracts. Now, they did sign Verlander for a short-term deal, but that was a different situation. Okay, That's a shorter-term deal, and it seemed like for a shorter-term deal, Carlos Correa wanted opt-out clauses to test the free agent market again. The Astros weren't going to give him that. It doesn't make sense from the Astros' perspective to give him something that he could just opt out of, commit to a deal, give a guy $35 million for one season, then he's gone the next year because he's going to get a longer-term deal somewhere else. That doesn't make sense from the Astros' perspective. So a lot of people are blaming the Astros for this, but I think they put together a good faith offer for a guy that is a good player, a Potentially great player over the next couple of years, but has had injury issues. Let's be frank. I mean, Carlos Correa is great in October, but he has his lulls. If you're going to pay someone $35 million over 10 years, he has to be someone like Mike Trout. Carlos Correa is not Mike Trout. That's nothing against Carlos. Mike Trout is a generational talent. I don't think Correa is a generational talent. I don't think he's headed to the Hall of Fame, for example. Jose Altuve, I think, was headed to the Hall of Fame. He may have deserved some semblance of a contract like that. Then the cheating scandal happened, and I think since baseball writers are so vindictive when it comes to Hall of Fame voting, I'd, I think he's going to have a tough time getting in. That's another topic, another conversation to be had. So then, if Carlos was not going to get the long-term deal here that he wanted, then he wanted to go somewhere to a team that was going to offer him opt-outs after a shorter period of time, and the Twins, who are always shuffling their lineup and always shuffling their player roles. They decided, well, let's make an investment in Carlos, see if we can actually win, which they won't, um, and maybe that will convince him to stay. I think he is going to opt out after the first year, test the free agent market again next year, and then possibly sign with a team like the Angels or the Red Sox, somebody like that that can give him a longer-term contract. That's what Jeremy Booth believes. So... Enough of my talking. Let's bring Jeremy in to talk about Carlos Correa and what he thinks about this particular move, him leaving the Astros and going to Minnesota and what that means for the Astros now moving forward because now they have, you could say, a hole at shortstop. But this Jeremy Payne kid is pretty good. I think he could uh, he has some upside. But here's Jeremy Booth on all of this associated with Carlos Correa. Jeremy, uh, at first glance, uh, this seems totally ridiculous. Carlos Correa with the Twins, but I feel like there's a story behind it. What do you think is really going on?
1: You know, Daniel, I think uh, it was really important, obviously, for Carlos to be the highest-paid infielder AAV-wise in history, right? And so he gets that by, I think, $100,000 over Anthony Rendon and a million over his buddy, Francisco Lindor. I think the bigger story was that his demands – as far as the Astros and obviously the rest of baseball felt for longevity and dollars were let's call it out of line, right? Consistently out of line. And the Astros I think made a decision to move on rather than continue to have this hanging over their ball club.
0: So we talked about this throughout the season that he was going to go into free agency, that he may have thought that he was valued. that He's putting his value a little higher than what he really was. And that's kind of how it played out, right? Yeah, In a way, for the long-term deal that he wanted, right? That, I guess I should phrase it that way. He wanted well, the think, long-term deal. I think you have your number.
1: You have 10 and, and, or 3 and 35.1, right? So he would have had, he would have wanted 10 and 35.1 per year. So you're looking at what, you know, whatever that works out to 10 and 351 million. And I don't think anybody out there was willing to do it. I, I think interestingly that with these opt-outs with the twins, um, he's going to hit the market next year. Right, if they don't win again, he's going to do, win in Minnesota. He's going to do this again. He's going to hit the market again, um, and he has to go to another ten-year deal. So we're really talking about eleven years, right? And then if he doesn't do it, then after that, it's a twelve-year deal. You know, I, I don't. I see the the upside for him if it works. I don't see him going out and getting a ten-year, three hundred fifty million dollar deal. There are people that wanted to that would have done that this year if it was out there for him. And there are players out there like a Corey Seager or a Marcus Simeon or even Trevor Story who would be very, very reasonable with what they're going to get paid. Um, there's guys out there who that money is for. And I don't think Carlos is one of them.
0: What from the Astros perspective, there obviously a lot of fans are upset that he, he chose the twins, didn't stay with the Astros, but they're more upset at the fact that, well, oh, my gosh, why, why did the Astros could have just matched this offer? I mean, they were already what a 32 million a year, five years, 160. I could have yeah. just done this, but my response to them is the opt-outs were not going to be there and he still wasn't going to get that high figure. So from an Astros perspective, did they do the right thing here?
2: Who,
1: you know, I've been the most critical person in on, on in the universe, on the Houston Astros organization. The way they no, mean- you have
0: not. No, yeah, I don't I, believe you.
1: Okay. Um, but I, I can say, that with this one, I'm firmly with the club. And, and, and I say that because some of these contracts are irresponsible and that that's not a uh, a shot at Carlos, but staying on the field for him has been a very big issue. He would need to show me this. I think he averages 109 games played or, or 110 games played over the life of his career. He would need to show me this for a year or two more to get an extended deal of seven or eight years of this type of money. Um, it's, it's nothing against the ability. The ability is there. was first pick overall, uh, and Jeff Luno, his first GM, you know, uh, run year and, and Bobby Heck's last scout, last draft. Uh, you know, he's he's performed when he's been on the field. There's no question about that. But he was a five or six hitter in, in the lineup in Houston. He's going to go to Minnesota and hit third. It, it's a, they're, they're, these, these two clubs are not the same. Right. And so if the Astros are assessing where they are, um, do I think handing it to Jeremy Pena might be a little soon? Yeah, it's probably a little bit soon for this lineup for where he is. Um, but I think Trevor's story is a better fit right now. Yeah, but I absolutely agree with moving on from Carlos Correa, because I don't think Carlos was reasonable. Um, and I do think this one was on Carlos as opposed to a Garrett Cole, who was very upset with the front office, and a George Springer who was very upset with the front office and how they treated him, treated them. This is a different front office. So this is on Carlos Correa. This is on him wanting to be, you know, that that ego status of the most money. And, you know, it's his choice, and he's, he's a twin.
0: The twins are the uninteresting destination, did, did you really think that there was that was the only team that would be able to offer this type of contract to them, I mean he's going to go to Minnesota that's not a team that's going to be in contention, you would think, at least I mean they have a decent lineup but they have some pitching issues and that ballpark is not a hitters ballpark we know that um, I just think that the destination itself was very, very strange.
1: I don't. I think there's other teams that would have done this. I mean, clearly the Orioles offered them, what ten and three hundred or whatever that was, and that wasn't enough. And I don't want to go to Baltimore. You got your ten-year deal. You don't want to do it, right? I mean, the uh, Tigers beforehand there was rumors of them at ten. I think three hundred as well. I don't want to do that. And I want to do Detroit. Okay. So it really was about the AAV. It's really what it was about. And I think other teams would have done that on a year or two basis. I think the Twins swooped in um, after the trade for Donaldson looked around at what Trevor Story's market was, saw that that had heated up a little bit. Maybe that was going to be too expensive. I have a feeling that the Twins are really into these short-term window contracts because they don't know what they're going to have year to year. And so I think that kind of fit what they were willing to do. Took a run at Correa and it just worked out. Um, I also don't believe the Astros had a chance to match this. I think it moved fast enough and it had gotten so contentious um, between the two sides with Correa and Boris's ass, Scott Boris's ask, that the Astros were so put off that they just, as we've seen, distance themselves from that. You know, stories very quietly. Reports started to come out of um, some of our contacts, at spring training last week, that the Astros were very turned off by the uh, the Carlos Correa camp. So, you know, it look it, it's it's over now. I, I side with the front office on this one. Usually, I'm pro player. I'm certainly certainly not a fan of how the Astros have have done things under the Luno era. But I do agree with James Click and Jim Crane on this one. It was time to say goodbye.
0: Do you think moving forward, you mentioned Jeremy Pena. Um, do you think the Astros would be willing to bring in a story, a Trevor story like that at this point?
1: I think so. I think you have to. And I think you have to because you need to build up. You have to have, there's nothing behind Pena. If you really believe Pena is a, a big league shortstop, what do you have behind him, right? If he goes down, what do you have? Diaz, okay, then what do you have behind him? So there aren't a whole lot of trade pieces there. And if, if Pena was with a team, say like Seattle, right, that has a year or two still to build into learning how to play at that level and be cohesive, then it would be the right fit. And you say goodbye to Correa, but with Altuve still here, with McCullers still here, with the core of Tucker, who has finally begun to make the adjustments last year, as we saw to be the player that the ability says he can be, with uh, maybe the best hitter in the American League in, in Jordan Alvarez, with the players that they have, plugging Pena into that lineup who – I'm not calling him an automatic out. I'm calling him a young big league hitter instead of somebody like Story who can compete with that for three to five for at least three years with that window to win to win uh, more titles and a better shot at it. I think they got to go get the guy. I don't think I don't think you hand it to Pena right now. You get it to Story, and Pena plays his way out, and Story's a chip.
0: And finally, I got to ask you uh, about how this whole thing really played out as far as player representation goes. You mentioned Scott Boris. He was brought in. I believe he was brought in. Was it during the lockout? or right before the lockout. Um, you know, he has a history of getting guys what they want and what benefits him and you know everything that goes along with Scott Boris and what he does is there a grand plan from his perspective for Carlos Correa you think moving forward after oh, wow. having seen what the contract is that he just signed.
1: So Scott Boris's plans are never limited to one player ever. I mean, if you've ever listened to Scott Boris talk and I say this with all due respect, every guy he talks about is a better player than Jesus Christ, and I'm not saying that as as like it's like oh this guy is this and he makes this guy look like you know it's just it's it's just part of what he does man he's really good at what he does and sometimes you buy into it and sometimes you're like you know and and, and this is one of those situations where you have to look around the league and Scott Boris you know Carlos Correa Cheney's agents his original agent was an entertainment agent so it had everything to do with his brand nothing to do with baseball it's all brand right all brand oriented. And then it became baseball, baseball, baseball with Boris. This is what I think is going to happen. And this makes a lot of sense. The Boston Red Sox have a shortstop named Xander Bogarts. Xander Bogarts um, has a six year deal. I think it was 120 million. If first year was 21, second year is 22. Guess who has an opt out after 2022? Drum roll Xander Bogarts, right? So if Xander Bogarts has an opt out and Correa is in Minnesota with an opt out. They have a chance to play their way into another top two or only two uh, shortstops on the market, somebody's gonna need one. Maybe it doesn't work out in New York with the Yankees. Maybe Correa slides there. I don't see that. I told you before, I don't see that. Maybe it's something that happens in LA with the Dodgers. I certainly not Correa, but Bogarts could go there. And then Correa ends up in Boston with Cora. Um, I don't see Carlos Correa as a Northeast type player. From somebody who has spent time in that region, Carlos, as we've talked about before, is a love me, love me, love me, love me, love me, ego, 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 love me player just the way he does it that's him it's not an, it's not a, um, a, a a dig or it's not a, it's not an aside it's just it's just how he where he is those fans up there care about what the Astros fans are starting to care about and that's just winning oh God. and that's it and they don't care who wears the uniform and they don't don't come up here talking about oh I'm Carlos Correa celebrate me. No, don't think so. The legacy there is legacy there. And where Carlos had a chance to really make his mark was here in Houston. Um, And I think the grander plan for Scott Boris is really to put those two against each other and leverage them a year down the line.
0: Jeremy Booth, thank you so much. Appreciate it. As always, man. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Always a pleasure to talk to you about baseball-related items. He is one of the best in the business at breaking that stuff down. So I always appreciate him coming onto the podcast. To talk about that, so Carlos is gone. The Astros are still going to be a good team, but there are certain issues with the team. They've got they've got guys on paper that you look at and be like, okay, well, this is an awesome lineup still without Correa. Remember, Correa was a five six hitter, right? So without Correa, they could plug in Jeremy Pena and see how he does. They do have a little bit of flexibility in working Pena in because they have some guys that have experience. They still have a great lineup, but they're going to need these guys to produce. Michael Brantley's getting up in age, had some injury issues. Yuli Guriel's getting up in age. We need Alex Bregman to get back to what he was a couple of years ago. If all of that stays true and those things happen and they perform like they can perform, like we think they can perform, the Astros are going to be fine without Correa. I do believe that. So we'll see how it all plays out. Now let's go to Deshaun Watson finally being traded by the Texans, this time to the Browns. So Deshaun Watson is gone. He is headed to Cleveland. So over, over the weekend, we had two players actively and willingly choose to play not in Houston, which is a great town with great weather, no income tax, all of that. So we had two guys... Decide, no, I don't want to play in Houston anymore. I'd rather play in Cleveland, and I'd rather play in Minnesota. Okay, that's a first. I don't think I've ever seen that before. But uh, Deshaun Watson's gone. They got yeah, The Texans traded him three first, three first first-round picks, a third-round pick, and then a pick swap uh, in a draft later a couple of years down the road. Before I bring in Mike Meltzer, here's my take on all of this. Um, I I just feel the whole situation. By the way, I'm glad that Deshaun is gone. I wish him well. That's fine. From my perspective, I only care about what the Texans do. So that was a huge cloud hanging over the Texans' head. So I'm glad they have this resolved. As Nick Casario said over the weekend, now both sides have clarity. They can both move on. Do I think the Texans probably could have gotten a little bit more? Maybe a second round pick, maybe an active player. Sure, but at the same time, they got a pretty good haul. Look, this team has so many holes. They are bereft of any depth. They need to add as much as they can. So even if they added an active player like a lot of fans online think they should have added, what is the guarantee that that guy, when he comes up in the contract after his rookie deal after four or five years, is going to want to stay here, if, especially if this team's not going to be winning? Right, so there are a lot of factors that go into it. I think Nick Casario did a decent job in getting what he got. The main thing is getting Deshaun Watson out of here. And the thing that really rubs me the wrong way about this is that this guy, who hasn't played football in 14 months, basically quit on his team before all of the stuff off the field happened, before all the sexual allegations, sexual misconduct stuff that happened off the field with the massage therapist, before all of that stuff happened, this guy pretty much quit on his team. He did. And I understand players wanting to be more involved, especially marquee players, guys at quarterback. You know, this is a different generation, right? Things have changed. They feel a little bit more empowered. Social media, the attention that they, I I understand it's a different generation. So I can comprehend players of Deshaun Watson's magnitude on a franchise like the Texans wanting to be more involved into some of the decisions that are made. They didn't bring in Deshaun on the GM hire. That really made him upset. I'm old school. I'm I'm more of the thought of, hey, look, you sign this huge massive contract where they're going to pay you a lot of money. You play until the team, you express your concerns, you express your displeasure, you say you want to be traded, all that is fine, but you don't quit on your team. You don't basically quit on your contract. That's what he did. He could have played last year, even with all the stuff. After all the sexual misconduct allegation, he could have played. He could have been on the field. He chose not to. And so he was done. He didn't want to, he didn't want to play for the Houston Texans anymore. I don't think that was right. I think a lot of fans harbor ill will for that. And uh, rightfully so. I don't think that was right. Um, but the thing that really rubs me the wrong way is right by, what, about a week and a half after the criminal charges were not going to be filed after the announcement was made that criminal charges from the grand jury were not going to be filed against Deshaun Watson, I mean, it was a free-for-all. All All these teams calling, hey, hey, we want Deshaun, we want Deshaun, no problem, no problem. And then he got a $230 million guaranteed contract. Not only that, his agent, who is a wizard, by the way, I want that guy representing me uh, if I was ever in situations like this, his agent was able to work a deal with the Browns that only paid Deshaun a base salary of a million dollars his first year because there might be suspensions coming from the NFL for violating the league's personal conduct policy. I mean, think about that. What kind of precedent does that set moving forward? It works out great for Deshaun, but that's wild. I'm sure a lot of owners around the league are not very happy about that. And the thing also that rubs me the wrong way is this guy's getting paid $230 million. He hasn't played football for, what, 14 months? And it's just kind of gross, the whole thing. I mean, there are still civil lawsuits filed by women. I'm not saying I'm not saying I believe the women. I'm not saying I believe Deshaun. I'm not taking a side. I'm just stating the fact that there are still civil lawsuits pending against a quarterback who just got paid two hundred and thirty million dollars to go play football in Cleveland. Then the Browns release a statement like, Oh, we are aware of what's going on. We felt that Deshaun was right, and his character's right, he's going to rebuild his name, uh, that's fine. Basically, that statement is like, hey, we know what's happening, we don't really care, he's a good quarterback, he's going to help us win football games, forget all blah, 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 that. That's basically what that statement is, right? Let's be honest. And so the whole thing is just kind of gross. This guy with all these, I mean, what are these women thinking? Now, some of them, I have no idea what their motives are. Again, I'm not getting into all the details, but it's just kind of a gross situation how all this stuff played out. The best thing is both sides are going their own ways. So before I say anything else, let's go right to Mike Meltzer, who breaks this whole trade down from both perspectives. It's a shocker. I didn't uh, believe it when I saw it. Uh, Deshaun Watson going to the Browns. Mike Meltzer, your thoughts?
2: I was also very surprised just because we heard it come down to two teams, the Saints and the Falcons. I think Deshaun had told the Browns that he was not going to go there. And so my initial reaction was, man, that's a real shock considering we had heard he wasn't a fan of the cold weather. you remember that really windy game they played up there back in, I think, 2020. And so because they had been ruled out a day or two ago, yeah, I was pretty
0: surprised. To me, from an outsider's perspective, obviously this seems like it was all about money, guaranteed money, the big contract that he would get from the Browns. Not sure if the Falcons and Saints were able to match that, but it seemed like a money play.
2: Yeah, I think I think it was... I think a lot of it's money. I don't think it's exclusively money. I don't want to be naive on it. And part of it, Daniel, is because we don't exactly know what the other teams were willing to offer. There was the report Friday morning from all the Carolina media that Deshaun's camp had asked the Panthers to guarantee years three and four of the contract. And they said, no, which kind of seems strange to me because of how desperate the Panthers seem to be to land Deshaun Watson. And so you know, were the Falcons and Saints willing to guarantee that much money, plus give Watson even more money moving forward? Like, I think the money played a significant role. I don't think it played the only role in that. I do think Deshaun looked at that Cleveland roster and their situation and felt like there was probably a a slightly better chance to win, maybe even substantially more when you compare it to the Falcons or let's say the Panthers.
0: Or the Saints. I mean, the Saints, I thought were, were the prime spot for him to go considering the depth of talent in the AFC as opposed to the NFC when all of these moves have really shaken out this offseason.
2: Yeah. I thought the saints were a destination that would be maybe the best for Deshaun from a being able to win standpoint in 2022, but the worst for the Texans from the standpoint that the saints had only the number 18 pick as compared to Cleveland, which is what I think 12 in this year's draft. And I also look at the Saints, and it's like an older roster, not a lot of players that were interesting. And so, you know, I I did think that between the Saints and the Falcons, I thought the pull of home and being close, being in Atlanta, close to where he's from, would have been maybe the clincher there. But, yeah, I I thought the Saints were a viable destination, and I guess he decided to go with Cleveland.
0: From a Texans perspective, uh, you already see the debate online, right? Was it enough? Did they get what they needed, what they should have gotten? That question will be asked many times. Nick Casario is talking on Saturday. It would be interesting to hear what he says. Probably nothing, given what he uh, what he usually does. <laughs> but uh, from your perspective, as far as the Texans Hall is concerned, where, where do you stand on that?
2: I don't think they got enough. I think that this is a light return on Deshaun. I think it's probably, I don't know, 75, 78 cents on the dollar. They got the three first round picks, which I thought was Daniel, the minimum hurdle to clear. They had to get three first round picks to make this deal. So they got that. And the first of those picks is relatively high in the first round. That's important, but second round picks are very valuable draft picks. I think sometimes we act as though, okay, it's how many first round picks you get. Those second round picks are valuable picks. There are a lot of great players picking the second round. To me, if I can get one or two twos, that's a big deal. What I would have wanted to me, because any, it's a negotiation, right? You have to give yourself a wiggle room. If I'm Nick Casario and Cleveland was interested in Deshaun, my first ask would have been, okay, I want three first-round picks, I want two second-rounders, and I want one of your young defensive players, Greg Newsom, who they picked in the first round last year, or Jeremiah Owusu-Koromo, who they picked in the second round last year. That's where I would have started my negotiation. If this had ended up with, let's say, Three first round picks, a second round pick, and one of those players, I'd say, okay, that's about as close to full value given the situation and the no trade clause that you could have gotten. So I am disappointed in the return.
0: I'm fascinated as to what the discussions were because, as you mentioned, if you're going to trade them a quarterback, my first ask would be, okay, what about Baker Mayfield? Not that you're going to keep him, but that you might flip him for other parts. Um, that's probably something that the Browns, obviously it was something that the Browns said, no, we're not going to, but I, I'm just, I'm just curious as to what the conversations were behind the scenes. I think that's fascinating.
2: Well, I think that's one of the questions, Daniel, that Nick Casario has to be asked on Saturday. Were you interested in Baker Mayfield? Not, and it needs to be framed in exactly the way that you did. It's pretty obvious. They're rolling with Davis Mills in 2022. I think that's logical. I think that makes sense. But Baker Mayfield, we just talk about the compensation for Watson being, in my mind, a little bit too low. Well, Baker Mayfield, based on what Carson Wentz got from Washington two round picks, I feel like Baker's worth at least that maybe a second and a third round pick. So I could have realized some of the value in getting Baker and flipping him. That needs to be asked of Nick Casario. Did they try and get Baker Mayfield in order to flip him somewhere else?
0: I I saw you going back and forth with some people online wondering if this is, uh, if you feel good about this, is this a fresh start for the Texans? Uh, You say no. I think overall, I think the fan base is kind of like, oh my gosh, we're just happy that this ordeal is over with. At least we now know the capital that we have moving forward. And uh, then we could go from there with all the picks that we have in the future. But uh, I I think you don't agree with that.
2: I don't. I, now to be fair, Daniel, I think that there's a sense of, relief the fan base can finally move on and stop talking about Deshaun and look at the team moving forward my thing is when I look at a fresh start I'll give you an example of a fresh start the New York Giants this past year it's a mess they've been a disaster for a couple of years people hated Joe Judge they hated the GM Dave Gettleman their owner John Mara after some weird fits and starts he fired both guys they got a new GM they got a new head coach that is the Mike Meltzer definition of a complete fresh start we do not have that in Houston yes a lot of people are sick of Deshaun Yes, a lot of people are sick of talking about Deshaun. Does anybody think that there's a fresh start with Cal McNair? Is there a fresh start with Jack Easterby? Is there a fresh start with Nick Casario? Eh, kind of, I I suppose, like, yes, you can turn the page and move on, but, like, there are still a lot of bad feelings and broken trust that this organization has chosen not to address with their fan base.
0: Oh, 100%. I totally agree with you. But at the same time, I would say that, the clock is now ticking on Nick Casario. I think you and I had talked about this before, but now that you've made this monster deal, you have all these draft picks to lay the foundation for your team. Now, this is what you're going to be judged on. If you're Nick Casario moving forward, what you do with this?
2: 100%. And I don't know what, Daniel, what the timeline is for Nick, because this feels like almost like a, a team with no country or something along those lines where, you know, you look at their cap table, Daniel, in 2023, and it's basically... Laramie Tunsil and like a hundred million dollars of cap space. This is probably a longer conversation for a different day, but I, not that I'm against Nick Casario's moves, but their free agency approach and what they do is so arbitrary. And I have no idea what the basis for the moves are or are not that. I don't know what the clear plan is. And I don't know exactly what they're trying to build to be fair. What's important is what they got for Deshaun, which is now three ones, a three, a five, what they do with those picks, and what they do with their own picks. I don't know if there's pre- – there's not going to be pressure to win this year, obviously. 2023, you probably want to see some improvement. But by 2024, I would say there needs to be some real signs of progress organizationally. Cal has been very patient. Um, well, Or I guess let – me, let me rephrase. Cal has not really been patient. The organization has been patient. I don't know what the timeline on Nick Casario is, but I do agree with what the spirit of what you said, which is now – the clock, whether it's, it's not late in ticking, but it has started ticking starting Friday.
0: To me. And finally, I will leave it with this. I think their fresh start in their minds is what they see out of Davis Mills this year. Um, because if this doesn't work with Davis Mills, if there's no true progress made with him, then they could go with a young stud quarterback, a Bryce young, those guys that are coming out in 2023, then you have your fresh start. Uh, quote-unquote, fresh start. Maybe I'm crazy in thinking that, but I think this is just another one of those trial years. Maybe that's why they're approaching free agency the way they are is because, let's okay, let's see what Davis can do here, and then we can really assess what our franchise looks like after that.
2: Well, and and this would certainly be – I mean, they took Davis Mills in the third round last year. I didn't really love the pick because it seems to me like it was a bit of forcing the issue. I was wrong about that. Like, I was wrong. They were right. Davis Mills has shown me enough to where I feel like – there's something there. I'm intrigued. I don't know what the ceiling is going to be. And I guess we'll find out more in 2022. I don't think there's a whole lot of help around him, but you know, I guess they've sort of solidified the offensive line by bringing back Laramie Tunsil, which kind of came out of nowhere. And yeah, I mean, this is going to be more of a normal season. They will not be good. They play the AFC West. I think they're clearly the fourth place team in their division um, But if Davis Mills can really be something, then combined with the extra draft capital, then you might be on the verge of building something. I mean, there is also the point to be made that like it's not easy to get the number one pick in the draft or the number two pick. Like there are a bunch of bad football teams to where it's not easy to necessarily pick that high as well. So what happens a quarterback is going to be super interesting moving forward. I think what they're doing right now makes sense. Um, And we'll see what they get in Davis mills this year. Like, does he take that next step or two to where you evaluate and you're like, okay, they might have something here.
0: Quarterback. We shall see. Mike always appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike, for uh, being a part of the podcast as always. He's great. Uh, So yes, it was a crazy busy Houston sports weekend. One that, uh, We'll be talking about for a while, but the Astros can move on. The Texans can move on, and we can now focus our attention on the Houston Cougars, who are the real story in town right now until the Astros get going in the regular season in April. The Cougars are on fire. I'm so happy for that program. I love Kelvin Sampson. I love his staff. I like the players. I love being around the program. Good vibes, good culture. Can't say enough good things about those dudes. So I was really happy. Not only did they beat Illinois, which is always great to see the Illini lose, uh, but they the way they do it. And people always ask me, "Is like, oh, well, how far can the Cougars go this year?" They can go as far as they want because they play a brand of basketball that dictates the style of play every time they're on the floor. Defense, rebounding—they force teams out of their comfort zone. Arizona will be tough. Arizona's got a lot of length. They, provo- they, they provide a lot of difficult things for the Cougars, um, but I, the Cougars will be in that game. It may get away from them a little later. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I, you know what? If I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet against the Cougars. In fact, I'd stay away from this game because I think U of H is going to put up a better fight than most people think. Look what TCU did against uh, arizona so i think the cougars are primed and ready they're playing well they're shooting the ball well they're moving the ball well not only playing defense everything about what they're doing is fantastic and so good luck to the cougars i will be in san antonio for that game on thursday i hope to see a lot of red in the stands cougar red and that's going to be a lot of fun all right until the next time we talk hope you guys have a good week i i think i'll have another episode later this week maybe something from san antonio Maybe an interview with somebody that I see down there. So uh, I'm not promising anything. So we'll see if I deliver on that. But until then, this was a chock-full episode. Thank you to Jeremy. Thank you to Mike for always contributing to this podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. It was a lot to talk about. A lot going on in Houston sports. But, man, we love this town, don't we? Uh, We may not have a lot of winning outside the Astros and the Cougars for a while. But there's always something to talk about. Until next time, see you later.